Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's 1851. I remember it well. The Industrial Revolution is raging. Everything is in flux and flow as new technologies reshape the world. And we're right at the heart of it all here in London. But we're not inside a factory or inside the boiler of a steam engine. We're somewhere very, 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 very small, completely dark, surrounded by the most intricate mechanisms in creation. Everything is quiet, apart from a very gentle scratching. As something searches inside this space for a catch. Hours pass. Springs are slowly tested and released, tested and held. And then, all of a sudden, click. The lock opens. And we see the lock picker, an American who's come across the world to take on this challenge, who has spent days inside this room. The news spreads downstairs to the lockmaker's shop and out into the streets. Newspapers carry the story out across the country, across the world to engineers and capitalists. Under the headline, The Great Lock Controversy, is the news that the Brahma Lock, the machine that promised perfect security, has been beaten. The unpickable lock has been picked. Hello and welcome once again to another episode of Patented with me, Dallas Campbell. It's a podcast about the history of invention from History Hit. And today we're talking about locks. What was the first lock, the first padlock, the first lock that involved a key? Well, my guest today is a historian of locks, amongst other things, David Churchill from the University of Leeds. And at the heart of our chat today is a story that I certainly hadn't heard before, and perhaps you hadn't either. The Great Lock Controversy of 1851. It's a story about locks and a time when technology promised to change the world in a profound way by creating a sense of perfect security. Sound familiar? Hi, David. How are you? I'm good, thank you, Dallas. How are you? I'm all right. Did I read this right? Are you a historian of locks? <laughs> I am. Yeah, amongst other things. <laughs> How the hell does one... Like, when I was at school, you know, and you do your careers advice, we used to, we had this computer and you, you tapped in, you know, you had to answer... This is like 1988. And you tapped in answers to things and it said what you were going to be when you grew up. And I got, like, priest and stuff. But I don't remember ever there being a lock historian because i'd be like that's what i want to do absolutely right yeah i know um i i did the same thing i got helicopter pilot and undertaker um so similar you know, both yeah I, there's, a, there's a 
synergy there. There's a connection. Yeah, but I'm I'm basically historian of locks and most things security. Interesting. And why? Okay, just before we start, how did you get interested? Was there a a thing that was was like, got it? It's locks. Yeah. So basically, my my early research was on the history of policing, and I was interested there not just in what the police did, but also what ordinary people did to deal with crime in their everyday lives, and that kind of led me to locks. And I was like, oh. That these people, you know, there are these new locks around in the Victorian period and, you know, be interesting to know more about them. And then, yeah, then I found this like wonderful archive of the Chubb Company. And then I've been at it ever since, really. So was it that you, when you were sort of looking at that, was it that you found interesting stories that you were thought, oh my God, who knew, was it, was it that? Yeah, it was. And it was also, I suppose, just the idea, it seemed to me that this was around about the time that people were starting to think of technology as something that could help solve the problem of crime. And I thought, oh, that's an interesting little line of inquiry. I'll see, I'll see where that leads me. And yeah, it's led me through locks and safes and strong rooms and burglar alarms. And um... what about internet security? Because I just got hacked this morning. Oh no! I'm really, I'm really annoyed. No, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I kind of decided in the end that I was going to draw the line at around about the time the internet got going. Partly because it's just a whole other, whole other thing. <sighs> Sorry, listener, I'm moaning, and I will, will crack on. Okay, locks. I'm excited to hear about some of these exciting stories. We're going to get on to the Victorians. It's always, it always comes down to the Victorians in the end. Um, let's, go, let's go all the way back. Is there such a thing as the first lock or lock 1.0? You know, I tell you what I imagine. You know that very famous photograph of Tutankhamun's tomb? And it's the door. And it's, a, I, think, I guess, Howard Carter or Howard Carter someone with him took this photograph and it's of the locked door and there's a kind of bar across it and there's a seal and it hasn't been opened since you know whenever Tutankhamun was locked that image is filled with kind of like oh my god an unpicked lock you know what could lie behind it there's something rather amazing and wonderful about that is that the first lock, that type of era, or can we get even further? Yeah, well, you're not far off. I mean, people start getting interested in the history of locks in the 19th century, and, yeah, they tend to trace it back to ancient Egypt. That's their kind of first point where they can say, because they always say things like, you know, you know, in their language, you know, primitive man buried his treasure in the ground, you know. So security, if you like, is kind of anthropological. It goes right back. Yeah. But in terms of something that's kind of like a fairly elaborate device that would be used to secure a door or a chest or somewhere that you don't want other people to get into, then yeah, they head back to ancient Egypt, which had some of these very big locks that were sort of within like the bolt of a door. So we're talking like a big piece of wood, like three, four, five feet. And with this like enormous like wooden key that you'd kind of put in, the, the principle was actually quite advanced. But was it a mechanical thing? Like as we might imagine, you put a key in and turn it and... Yeah, it's not exactly turning it. It's more a bit like, uh, it's almost kind of like raking it in a way. Like it's a big, long wooden stick, but it has little sort of, you know, it's obviously designed to fit the lock inside. And, and really, I mean, that's the, in some ways, the kind of principle of the sort of modern Yale pin tumbler lock that's invented in the mid 19th century, or it's kind of re- discovers that principle almost without knowing it and do those ancient egyptian or th- that period are there examples of it well there's not many because they were made of wood there's not many so most of the locks that survive and that people were collecting at the time were locks from medieval early modern europe which were made in iron or uh, brass or other metal or whatever and so those are the ones that you tend to see but yeah but they, they do trace back other kinds of locks to yeah ancient egypt ancient greece ancient rome and so on and what i mean those particular locks were they 
are we going to get onto sort of lock picking in a moment? But were they like how secure were they? I mean, did they stop people stealing things or? Yeah, it's it's difficult to know. I mean, the evidence base is pretty fragmentary. Obviously, the further back you go, but they were you know they were quite they were quite elaborate pieces of kit. But certainly, with the kind of ancient Egyptian lock, there's no doubt that you know the guy who's going around with the key because it's just so enormous. So it's not very secret in that way. I always lose my keys. <laughs> yeah, I always lose them. That's what I need is a, just a big. <laughs> Yeah, we well, wouldn't lose this, that's for sure. But yeah, so in some ways they're quite crude, but the actual kind of mechanism and the kind of security thinking behind it is pretty pretty sophisticated and pretty advanced. And yeah, I mean, it probably did, along with other things, deter people from having a go at trying to get in places where they weren't wanted. Suddenly, just as you said that, I just imagined the opening of the first Indiana Jones movie where he goes into the cave and there's all kinds of security booby traps and arrows flying <laughs> along and death traps and a giant ball rolling. I guess that's kind of a key in a way. Did those sort of puzzle key type things exist? Is that is that a thing or was that just in movies? No, no. Well, they, so they do exist. I mean, how far back these go is, is a bit tricky. But certainly, I mean, approaching the kind of time that, that, that we're coming on to talk about around about, you know, the uh, 17th, 18th century, there are like what people at the time tend to call letter locks, a bit like combination locks, basically, you know, you spell out the code word. And so there's a certain amount of puzzle or mystery to that. And then some locks also around about that time have somehow a little puzzle in them. So there's a, a famous lock by a Birmingham maker called John Wilkes, which is in the Victorian Albert Museum in London. And it's got on the front of the lock case, it's got like a little figure of, of a guy, but there's like a hidden catch somewhere. And if you press that, then he kicks his foot and then the keyhole's behind that. Ah, see, that's the thing. That, there is something really lovely about that. I love that idea of, of kind of puzzles and kind of weird things or, or a kind of book that you pull from the shelf and suddenly the door the wall opens <laughs> i always thought when i when i own a house i do own a house what am i talking about i'm gonna have like a secret room with a book that you pull yeah it'd be good wouldn't it i mean there'd be all kinds of stuff you could stash in there yeah <laughs> yeah i love that i love that okay so so early locks made of woods okay got it take us through i suppose take where, where do we start the locks as we might recognize them industrial revolution Victorian times, where where do you like to kind of? Yeah, so I mean, uh, well, let's let's go a little before that, in a sense of just setting the scene. So by the sort of well, medieval, early modern period. So we're talking now, you know, sixteenth, seventeenth, eighteenth centuries. Most locks in Europe, you know, they're they're kind of metal locks. They've got keys. We'd kind of recognise roughly what's going on there, but they do have a different kind of design principle from most of the locks we have today. Those kinds of locks at that time were made with uh, fixed guards or wards in them. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? So, yeah. So, I push a key in, what's happening? So you push the key in, and then as you try to turn the key, the key has to pass over a little shape. If you can imagine, like a little shape that's kind of, that extends. So the key has to pass over that little obstacle. So if you look at keys to lots of old locks, more or less elaborately, you'll see there's a little shape cut out of the bit at the end of the key. And that's because that's the shape that it has to pass over inside the lock, right? So that's the kind of basis for those locks around about that time. And they're still very common through the 19th century, partly because they're quite cheap to make. Uh, you know, have a sand set of patterns and you kind of bash them out uh, in, in the dozens. If there was a set of patterns, does that mean if you had enough keys you could like right okay pick a lock easily or just like open or i mean how how secure were those locks so you're getting you're getting to the heart of the problem right so one of the main problems of these kinds of locks was what was duplication so yeah if your locksmiths have 20 or 30 patterns then every 20th or 30th lock they produce is going to fit 
you know, the same key as the one before that and one before that and so on. So if you collect 20 or 30 keys with these kinds of patterns, you can get into a lot of doors, <laughs> right? So, so that's the problem. Uh, and people by the, certainly by the sort of later 18th century, they're well aware of this. They're well aware that this is a problem and they start trying to think about ways to overcome this problem. And so it's that period, the kind of classic industrial revolution period, the late 18th and the early 19th century, when we do start to see the kinds of locks that will become the basis for kind of modern locks. And was there, was, I mean, you mentioned sort of Chubb. When I think of locks, I think of Chubb. That seemed to be the big, is that them? Are they, I'm just trying to imagine the Industrial Revolution were building steam engines and cotton gins and stuff. I've never really considered locks as being part of that kind of revolution of things. Yeah, exactly. So they they are very much part of that. And people at the time do refer to locks uh, sometimes as machines, which is very weird from our point of view. But just as they thought the steam engine was a machine and just as they thought all these other revolution channels are machines, sometimes they talk about locks as machines too. And yeah, Chubb are part of that. Originally, they're a firm of like uh, ship engineers or ship outfitters uh, in Portsmouth around the kind of naval dockyard there. But there was the story goes that there was a spate of robberies in this dockyard and the government issued a reward, a prize, for somebody who could invent a lock that would basically have a unique key that could be produced at an affordable price. And so that's what stimulates them to go into inventing locks around about 1818. And then they develop that over the next few years. But I mean, the forerunners of this were a little further back, about a generation further back. And we're looking there at a couple of people, but particularly Joseph Brammer, who's a kind of prodigious inventor and engineer. Well, yeah, I've heard of Brammer because he invented, I think he invented the toilet because I think we did an episode on it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, water closets, fountain pens, presses, printing machines. He does all kinds of things, basically. But he, yeah, he's one of those Victorian industrialists who kind of came up with everything at the time. So he's, he, I didn't know, but I didn't realise he made locks as well. Yeah, he did. So lo- the, his lock was one of his earlier inventions. This is in the 1780s. So by this point, he's moved down from Yorkshire and he's in London and he's a fellow of the Society of Arts. And so he's involved in the world of, you know, mechanics, inventors and engineers. And he invents a lock. There had been various inventions previous to this and attempts to kind of produce a better lock on more secure principles. But he invents really the first one, which is like seen to be really revolutionary in terms of its potential for security. And uh, yeah, this is his you know, Brammer's lock is just how it's known. What does it look like? Is it is it a lock that goes on a door or is it a padlock? Yeah, yeah, no. The... So it's a lock that can go on a door. Or it's a lock that you could fit to a chest or a box or whatever. I think they were used for like, um, sometimes used for like the red boxes, like government uh, information boxes, uh, oh, okay. government papers. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you could have it on your door, on your office or on a drawer, wherever you want to fit it really. What does it look like? Uh, the lock itself, you know, outwardly doesn't look like very much. It has a kind of circular keyhole. The key is kind of interesting. It's like quite a small key and it's kind of cylindrical shaped and it's got at the end of it lots of little cuts in the cylinder. And what it does basically, how it works, uh, you push the key in to the keyhole and those cuts then apply differential pressure to lots of little sliders, uh, little, little bits of metal that are in the lock. So you push the key in against a spring and it pushes each of these sliders which are so to speak, intersecting the bolt. And so it pushes them all back just the right amount so that once they're clear, then the bolt can move. And the clever thing about it is that if you were able to get in the lock and look at these sliders at the front, you they all just look like they're in the same position. So you wouldn't be able to tell 
outwardly how far you need to push them. The secret, if you like, is in the key. And and Brammer's Lock and uh, others around that time and all the kind of ones that we're going to talk about that came afterwards, they all work on this new principle, which is not that the key has to pass a fixed guard or a fixed ward, but that it has to manipulate moving parts within the lock. So pushing little pins inside. Yeah, so it's like pushing little like metal pins back to the right amount, or it's lifting little metal levers or tumblers up, which are like little thin plates of metal within the lock. So they all have to instead engage and manipulate just right these moving parts. And if they do that, then that will free the bolt to move. And was was in terms of security, was this a massive leap in 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 the technology? It, it was because it counteracted a few problems of the old warded locks. So the first one we touched upon already is duplication. So if you've got 20 or 30 patterns, every 20th or 30th lock is going to have, you know, be the same as the last batch. But with this way of looking at things, then you can make very, very tiny gradations of difference in those cuts in the key, in the case of Brammer's, or in the key bit for like a chub style lock. So it lifts the tumbler just slightly higher or slightly lower. And so you can have a much greater range of combinations, if you like, or a much greater range of permutations for the same size of lock and key. You know, and the more moving pieces you put in, the more you get. Right. And at the time, lock inventors love these tables where they kind of show this exponential effect that, you know, if you put a few moving parts in, then you can maybe get whatever, you know, 60, 70 combinations. But if you put like 10 in, then you're going to be into like billions and billions. You know, it's, it's an exponential series in that way. I'm Tristan Hughes, host of The Ancients from History Hit, where twice a week, every week, we delve into our ancient past. I'm joined by leading experts, academics and authors who share incredible stories from our distant history and shine a light on some of antiquity's great questions. Was the Oracle of Delphi really able to see into the future? What can be discovered from lost civilizations? And was King Arthur actually real? You can expect all of this and more from the ancients on History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Yeah.
presumably with lock manufacturers, there's an, an arms race develops between lock manufacturers and, and thieves. You know, if people could pick the old lock with the, with the kind of shape that, that passed over a thing. So when this new lock came out, were people like, right, how are we gonna how are we gonna crack this one? So the lock the lock manufacturers certainly make a lot of this. I mean, even in Brammer's original patent specifications or whatever in the 1780s, he's talking about artful thieves, ingenious thieves, and that's why we need these new locks. These were actually really quite good locks made like this were really difficult to pick. There's not a lot of stories of criminals opening these kinds of locks. There are stories of criminals stealing the keys <laughs> and copying them, but not of picking them without access to the keys. I think it was Chubb or one of the one of these companies who kind of offered a criminal or somebody who was in prison if they could pick the lock they would be released. That's how confident they were of the of this of this new type of lock. Or maybe maybe I dreamt that. Did no, I no, that? no, 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 no. So this is a story which is very often repeated by Chubb for, for decades and centuries afterwards. Is that in the 1820s, basically, uh, Chubb from fairly early on had quite close relationships with people in power and somehow seem apparently they managed to arrange that like some legendary lockpick who was imprisoned on a hulk a convict ship in the 1820s would have a go at um, picking their lock allegedly if he'd opened it then he'd have his freedom and he had it for uh, a number of weeks and in the end uh, allegedly he threw it away and said just take the damn thing out <laughs> you know I, i'm sick of it <laughs> I, it, it sounds apocryphal it sounds like that story may be absolute Yeah, yeah. I I mean, maybe something like that happened. I mean, they certainly embellished it over the years. You know, it got more and more elaborate. It's one of those stories that's too good to check. We'll just absolutely, absolutely. But but was there was there was there an idea at that time that there was this idea of perfect security of like that's it we've got it cracked yeah exactly these new locks that's really what their makers claim for them it's not just that they're way more secure than the old ones but that really we've reached a new age in security and we've reached a point where really our locks are unpickable and that's a claim that's made certainly of Brammer's lock uh, so uh, sometime around about 1790 he puts his lock in his shop window in Piccadilly in London with a message on it that basically says, whoever can pick this lock or, or accurately whoever can fashion an instrument to pick this lock will get 200 guineas, 200 pounds, a lot of money. And that challenge is apparently unmet until 1851. So they're seen as, he's seen as being so, so unlikely to pick that you would really wager a, a lot on that. I, quite, I like that. It's a bit like an X Prize, you know. It's like if you can go into space and come yeah. back, and, you know, in a reusable rocket, will give you a million pounds. I love that the lock X Prize. So eighteen fifty one. Well, eighteen fifty one, great exhibition, I think, isn't it at Crystal Palace? Yeah, 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 yeah. So there's the great exhibition, Crystal Palace, and this is, you know, it's quite a famous event. It's sort of seen in some ways as a celebration of the kind of preeminence of British manufacturing and British industry. So it's an international trade fair. Everyone brings their inventions and artifacts and uh, designs and decorative materials and whatever. It's a great big thing. And one of the things that is exhibited is locks. Brammer's lock is there and Chubb's detector lock is there and various other locks uh, are on display. But someone's kind of come along to spoil the party, if you like. This chap is Alfred Charles Hobbs. He's an American. He's the agent for an American lock firm called Day and Newell, which is one of the kind of big names in American lock making. And he's a very skilled mechanic. Um, and he comes along and claims that he is going to show the shortcomings or the flaws in British locks as a way of promoting his employer's lock. 
And so what happens basically is that uh, he first picks the Chub detector lock. He picks it first in private, but then he demonstrates it in public. Picks it fairly quickly, within about half an hour or something. How does he? How does he pick it? Right. Okay. So he has the <laughs> he has this method which comes to be called the tentative method uh, lock picking. So basically, if you basically what he does is he puts pressure on the bolt. He has a a little a little device which keeps pressure on the bolt free for his hands, and then he has little you know lock picks little pieces of metal, uh, and he individually moves the moving parts inside until he can feel some sort of release in pressure on them. And that's the point when, uh, that should be the point when they've reached uh, the height that they're supposed to be lifted to by the key, right? The, the clever thing really was implying a pressure to the bolt because other because uh, otherwise you, you can't really feel this release in pressure and otherwise you kind of, each time that you do one, then it, it just drops back to where it was. So it's a way of kind of being able to manipulate these things individually and sequentially until you've got them all in the right place. So he does that with Chubb's lock. And that's seen to be a success. Chubb write letters to the press contesting it and saying, oh, this wasn't one of our latest and all the rest of it. But most people... Was there... Was, I just, I'm interested, just because of the period, and here's an American coming over and making fun of the British law, was there a kind of political sort of one-upmanship there was yeah because this this unpickable lock had suddenly been yeah certainly so so certainly it's a surprise right the the people uh you know people writing about this think this is a surprise there's also definitely a sort of patriotic element to some of the discussion i mean it's a bit complicated so some some newspapers are kind of very impressed and they think uh this is good because this is progress you know this is someone coming along and, and getting us to kind of buck up our ideas and soon i'm sure some you know chub or someone will improve the lock and it will be progress. Others are a little bit more skeptical about his methods in a way which is a bit more prejudiced or a bit more jaundiced. And there's a lot, you know, uh, Punch have this poem about Yankeedom coming over and showing up British uh, inventions. And this isn't actually just about Hobbes and locks. This is actually a, a theme of the Great Exhibition. So new American like uh, reaping machines and harvesting, Colt revolvers are exhibited. All these things are seen to be better than British inventions. So it's sort of slightly undercutting the idea or the assumption of British supremacy uh, in inventions. So anyway, so once Hobbes is done with the detector lock, Chubb's lock, he then moves on to Brammer's lock. Uh, this one is much more complicated. It takes a very long time, um, many, many days, many, many hours of, of working a couple of hours a day on this thing in private, but eventually it is opened. Um, and there was an agreement beforehand that he could pick it in this way, and there was a jury uh, composed to, um, so to speak, verify what happened, and, and they're happy that he's picked it. And so there's a little bit of so noises off in the press, but basically it's seen that he has picked this, albeit under very special conditions. It seems like if he's doing it in private, he could just cheat and just <laughs> get, a, get the key. Or yeah, something. well, he hit- I'm gonna, I've picked it, but no one saw. <laughs> so I kind of think if there's no evidence, then it's like yeah. Well. So he has to, he has to explain how he's done it, and they they inspect the lock afterwards, and they see that there are little scratches on it, which are consistent with what he's saying his method is. So that so they're reasonably sure that they know, you know, he's being straight about it. Just 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 while we're on lock picking, can we just clear a few things up? You know, in like the movies. James Bond or whatever and they've got hand and they're handcuffed together and then he gets a hairpin and sort of puts a bend in the hairpin and starts fiddling about is that can you do that uh 
Or, you know, they do, they, or they just get a hairpin or a bit of wire and they scrabble around and learn. I mean, it, it depends kind of what lock is, right? I mean, over the years, obviously, some locks are produced to a good standard and some locks aren't, and that's never changed, right? So if you get a lock which is, you know, very basic or whatever, then if you're lucky, a bit of jimmying around with a pin or a paper clip might do the trick. Um, generally speaking, though, <laughs> not really. Uh, for anything, <laughs> anything that's decent, you need, you need something like what he was doing. You need some sort of continual pressure, some sort of specialist equipment, and you need a bit of still space to do that. My friend Will, um, when I was at school, I went to boarding school, so apologies, uh, and he had a tuck box. Sorry, that sounds terribly ridiculous. No, no worries. No judgment to Will. But he had, he, had, he had food in it, and he had a padlock on it, and I could pick it with a, a, a tweezers. And I did it because I'd seen it in the movies, you know, you shove a bit of wire in. And I tried it. I had a pair of tweezers, and I shoved it in. And lo and behold, the thing opened. I used to steal all his food and then lock it there again. There we go. Did, did he know? Have you just revealed this for the first no, time? No, I just don't think he ever knew. <laughs> <laughs> but I was careful. I didn't take all the food. I just would just, you know, take... You're judicious about it. Yeah, absolutely. Pepperami sausages, I remember he had. Ooh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that takes me back. Sorry, Will. <laughs> and then actually just uh, while I'm on this, you know, in combination locks with a, with a dial and, and sometimes they have a stethoscope. <laughs> is that true? No. <laughs> no, that one is a kind of invention of the movies in a way. Uh, okay, we can move on. I'm just suddenly, I just suddenly had these images of lock picking in It's movies. one of those things that there's lots of interviews with like lock and safe companies in the British press by, by about the 1920s, 1930s, and they delight in puncturing this myth over and over again. Yeah. <laughs> but that, that, okay, so let's, we're at the 1851, we're at Crystal Palace, the Great Exhibition. Was that really the foundation of modern locks? Was that... Did that kind of like light the touch paper, as it were, do you think? Yeah, in some ways it did, I think. I mean, it was kind of, I mean, obviously, um, so names like Brahma and Chubb were well-known kind of household names before this. But this was, in some ways, the moment that really ignited the kind of wider public imagination about locks and security. It's the first time that lots of, you know, big mainstream newspapers at the time, like the, you know, the Times or the Illustrated London News or whatever, were devoting serious amount of space to talking about locks and all these kind of, you know, the technicalities of all of what we've been talking about. And it really did inspire, you know, a, a lot of inventive activity in lockmaking to try to produce a lock that was actually unpickable, to try to get around this new method that Hobbes had, um, had exhibited. So new technology rather than just brute force in keeping things secure. Yeah, that's that's right. I mean, I, th- I think this this period is really interesting because it is a period in which people start to think that, okay, te- technologies could really play a major role. Like, yeah, as you say, kind of well thought out, well designed, mechanical kind of artifice could play a real role in helping to protect people against crime. And that's something that bleeds over also into the kind of making of so-called burglar-proof safes at this time and other things. It's interesting as well because it, it comes at a moment which is about a generation or so after the so-called new police forces were established in England in the 1820s, 1830s onwards, comes also about a generation or two after all the experiments with you know new prisons and penitentiaries. By this time, people are starting to kind of think that these things were maybe not quite all they were um, made out to be uh, in terms of reforming criminals and preventing them from committing crime in the first place. And so if you like, they kind of move on to kind of, if you like, hard technologies like these as something which might be the kind of basic kind of founding stone in protecting modern society from the risk of crime and thieves. When I look at my keys now, you know, I've got like the Yale's type key, like a Yale lock, I guess that's the other big company. And I've got a Chubb style lock, which is the kind of long bit. They don't look that much different from the locks 
that you've been describing, they seem to pretty much work. I mean, is there any kind of lock technology now? Is there such a thing as an unpickable lock? <laughs> Are there lock picking competitions? Like, where is the world of lock locks now? I mean, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, your your keys tell you that you know the principles of kind of modern locks are direct descendants of the kinds of period that we're talking about. And of course, you know, there have been lots of uh, innovations in how they're made and so on at scale and and more cheaply and so on. But the, I mean, the basic founding point of the design. Is, is a direct inheritance from this kind of period. In terms of what changes over time, in terms of lock technologies, I suppose there's a, there's a bit of a change in the sort of later 20th century when it's not so much a change away from locks as a kind of new ideas of what locks and keys could be. So we can start seeing, you know, like uh, electronic kind of access cards and things, you know, with a magnetic strip as being a way to get into something which is not using a key. Obviously, nowadays, we have obviously smart locks as well and other things like that, which potentially open up new directions in terms of how security might work. But there absolutely is still lock picking competitions that go on. Um, <laughs> there are, you can, you know, there are lock picks and, and lock picking guides are widely available. Yeah. Is there such a thing as a skeleton key? I remember as a kid hearing the term skeleton key and thinking, wow, that's great. Because it's, <laughs> I thought a skeleton, I thought kind of Scooby-Doo. Yeah. But are there kind of keys that you can get that would open anything or is that, is that a kind of myth as well? I think that's a bit of a myth. There are obviously like uh, master key systems like what, you know, we would have used when all hotels had had keys, you know, that you can you can sweep keys in such a way that one key will open a certain set, but it won't open anything uh, beyond that. The kind of, the original talk about skeleton and keys and stuff goes back to those kind of early awarded locks we were talking about before. It's a kind of key that will bypass the, the wards or the guards in the lock. So you don't need to try to make a key that has exactly the same shape. You have to have it that it's just so that it hooks around or it bypasses the guards in some way so that it can directly act on the ball. There, there, is, some, there is some truth in that, but in terms of more, more sophisticated lock designs, then, then that becomes much more challenging. I'm never going to, next time I lose my keys, I'm going to not be frustrated and angry. I'm going to celebrate the key. I'm going to, oh, I had a wonderful conversation with David and we talked about the history of the lock. And um, David, thank you so much. Really fascinating conversation. Thank you very much for taking the time. I don't know what a busy lock historian does all day, but whatever <laughs> you do all day. Thank you for taking the time out of your day uh, to come on the show. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's it for locks. Don't forget to lock your front door when you leave your house. Thank you very, very much for listening. Don't forget, if you're enjoying the show, don't forget to go and listen to other episodes. Tell all your friends about it. Don't forget to hit subscribe or whatever one has to do to satisfy the voracious appetite of the algorithm. Uh, and don't forget as well to get in touch if you've got a suggestion for a topic of a, or a story that you'd like us to cover. You can email us at patented at historyhit.com or you can prod and poke me, or pick me even, on social media. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes, or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code patented at the checkout. You get 50% off your first three months. That's patented 
for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.